0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview really cool people from business uh, executives to policymakers to talk about issues in our world today. Uh, I'm Princeton Jr. Tiger Gao. Uh, Here today with me in the studio is Mr. Pete Muller, who graduated from Princeton in 1985 and forged a rather unconventional path. He founded uh, PDT Partners, one of the most successful quant investment firms in our world today but he is also a musician, having just recently released his fourth studio album, Dissolve, uh, and he's touring all around the world right now. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Muller, and welcome
1: back to Princeton. Thanks, t- thanks Tiger. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Of course. Uh, it's, it's fun to be back on campus. It's, uh, it's been a while for me. It's been a few years. Awesome. Uh, and I want to introduce my
0: co-host for the episode today. So some of our audience members might be familiar with my friend Arjmani, who is a junior uh, also in, in Princeton. Uh, he is the president of Princeton Data Science uh, Society. He does uh, Indian classical music and leads a group here on campus as well. And uh, he hosted an uh, episode with me a couple months ago interviewing Stanford professor Ge Wang on uh, AI and music. So we thought uh, he's, he's such a great addition to the show, bringing in very
1: interdisciplinary dialogue. So uh, welcome to the, to, to the show again. Arjun? Yeah, it's to be guys, bad. I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty impressed when I was going to college. I didn't do nearly as many things as you guys are doing. So, <laughs> well, well, I heard you played uh, Frisbee when you were uh, Ultimate Frisbee in Princeton. That is, that is true. I played uh, Ultimate Frisbee in New Jersey, and the sport had just been invented. So when I got to Princeton, there weren't too many people playing it. And I also played tennis, and I thought if I tried really, really hard, I would have a shot at making the JV team. But if I played ultimate frisbee, I, I could be a star. And, <laughs> and, and, and so it was an easy choice. I had a blast. We actually made it to college nationals my senior year. We lost every game; they were all close, but we made it there, which was impressive. We won regional championships one year, and it was it was a big part of my experience. I had a blast. Uh, you were a wow. star. Yeah. I, I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, relatively speaking. I mean, I I, I think if. Uh, football players and basketball players, varsity players, tried out for ultimate. They would have crushed us. But <laughs> we picked a sport that not a lot of people had found yet. So it was it was a lot of fun. Uh,
0: awesome, because I I think it's uh, speaking of your experiences back at Princeton. I think it's just so hard to uh, to pin you down in one label. I mean, you run a very successful investment firm. You uh, design world class crossword puzzles for the New York Times. You are obviously a very famous musician. So I, I, I don't know, how, how would you describe yourself? I know Wikipedia has this parenthesis, uh, businessman and singer-songwriter, which I thought is probably one of the most complicated titles out there, you know?
1: Well, uh, okay, I, I would say I am not a very famous musician. <laughs> I, I've put my fourth record out, we're on, we're on a tour, but you know we're opening up for another singer-songwriter. I am pursuing it passionately, which is how I do everything I've done in life. So, um, but I, I can tell you a little bit about my about my path. when I When I was in Princeton, I did not know what I wanted to do. I always loved math. I was always good at math, at numbers, um, at word puzzles, things like that. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, uh, I worked uh, for a a German software company called Nixdorf uh, for a summer after my uh, my uh, I guess it was my sophomore year. Uh, in Germany. And then I worked for them again in Los Angeles. And they said, we love you. You're great. Come work for us in New York. And there was something about it that just didn't resonate with me. Um, and as, it, as, it had, as fate would have it, I was at Colonial Club. Yep. And one of the members of the club, a woman named Karen Lyon, was trying out for the, um, the U.S. rhythmic gymnastics team. And she asked me to compose a piece of music for her. And I did that and she listened to it and it was, it, was, it was a jazz piece i still remember the title it was called happy fruit and she she went and performed it um to it and she thought well i'm not so sure about that i'm like okay we'll give it a try and a week later she came back and she said oh my god I love it. It's the only piece I've ever performed to that I didn't get sick of. You have to play live for me at the Olympic Sports Festival, which was the tryout for the Olympics. Wow. And that little thing changed my life because at that festival, I ended up meeting a coach in California who said, Come play music for my team and compose music. And instead of taking that job with Nixdorf, I went to California and I stayed there. And I decided, Oh my God, I love California. I want to stay here. And so I started composing music for her team. It didn't take too long to realize that. I wasn't gonna make a very good living doing that, so I started looking for a job. And uh, I, I was looking for a programming job, I knew how to program, and there was a, a small company, a financial consulting firm called Bara, that was looking for a programmer. And I applied, I didn't know anything about finance, I didn't have the remotest interest in investing or finance, but I knew how to program and I thought, I need to make some money if I'm gonna stay in California and keep playing the piano. And then I figured out what they were doing and it was all math. And I said, wow, this is kind of cool. And I, I dove right in with the kind of intensity that I, I use when I pursue things and kind of figured things out. I ended up building a bunch of models, writing papers, talking at conferences. And that, that took my life in a completely different direction.
0: So, so I guess it wasn't really about finance, finance for you. It was about being able to pursue something intellectually challenging. It was about pursuing something interesting, whether it's like math modeling or
1: um, you know, doing music. Exactly, I, I, I love doing things that are creative, and understanding the creative process, understanding, uh, I don't know how to create something that hasn't existed before. And that, that, that's the thing that's, that's fun. And figuring out the investment markets became a profession for me. So, I, uh, so Barra basically consulted to people who were managing money. And the software we built and the models we built basically allowed people to figure out if they were any good at investing. So it would dissect your performance and say, "Well, okay, you made money because you made these kind of bets, uh, and you lost money because of these things, and you have this amount of skill." It was an evaluation. Um, after f- maybe five years, I started thinking, "Wow, we should—you know—we should probably be able to manage money." But I, I took a detour. I got fascinated by poker. So a few colleagues of me and, and uh, my, uh, colleagues that I had at the firm. Um, started going and playing poker at the Oaks Card Club in Emeryville, California. And we started at the 1-two tables. and we worked our way up to 30,60. And it's legal in California. You can play 24 hours a day. And I remember when we were deep into it, we I, I would leave the office at about five o'clock, six o'clock on Friday and play till Sunday about noon. <laughs> and we didn't miss a hand. <laughs> we got pretty good at running to the bathroom, having meals at the table. We were very addicted to it. I kept careful records, and I was, I was making a significant amount of money at it. Uh, and I remember going to my boss one year and saying, you know, this seems kind of silly. I am making more money playing poker than if I took that extra 10 or 15 hours a week and put it into bara. That doesn't seem right. Why don't we try to build a, a group that takes money out of the market? And they said, well, you know, we just went public and they did. Uh, We didn't tell people we were going to do that. And what do we know about that? And I thought, well, I don't know. We could probably figure it out. Long story short, I ended up um, going to Morgan Stanley and building a group to do that. Uh, Morgan Stanley actually didn't ask me to do that. They asked me to go around and talk at conferences, write papers, convince people they were good at quant. And I said, you know what, guys, I, I live in Berkeley, California. I have a great life. (laughs) <laughs> Why would I move to New York City and put on a coat and tie and do that? And they said, well, you know, we, we think you're pretty smart. Is there any job you'd come for? And I thought, well, what the heck? I said, let me start a little internal hedge fund in the bank. How old, uh, how old were you? Uh, 20s? I guess I'm probably late 20s at this point. That's absurd. I mean, the, the the amount of opportunity that was that was going on back then. It right? was it was pretty crazy. I mean, quantitative uh, analysis really hadn't come to the equity markets as much on, on the fixed income side. People were doing quant, so it was a it was a cool opportunity. And they said, you know what, come try it, and if it doesn't work, we'll have you do what we want you to do. And I thought, if it doesn't work, I'm moving back to California, but let's give it a shot. So I did. It turned out to be way harder than I thought, uh, much much harder but um, I kept going and uh, built a group that turned out to be pretty successful right so after you know after you spent some time in
2: finance and then afterwards you realized that you know maybe you got away from music a little bit and you wanted to come back to music um, so what, what was that process like did you feel like you were kind of getting away from that and you wanted to return to it and, and why did you come
1: back? Yeah to? so when I was working in Berkeley I had a grand piano in my apartment and I had a jazz group I would get together with every week we'd, we'd you know jam out every Thursday night and then we'd play gigs occasionally so there was music in my life when I moved to New York I also had a grand piano in my apartment but I I, you know I I would tinker on it I just I, I wouldn't play that often and and the reason was I had intensely focused on okay I'm gonna win this game I'm gonna figure this game out there was this crazy intensity which was wow I'm pretty competitive I'm pretty smart this is hard (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to beat the market, right? So I just threw myself into it, and, and I was a maniac. I really didn't have a social life. I had a good time. I built a group up, um, you know. but, but I, it was all-consuming. And then once we got successful, this was the funny thing, and I I'd, I'd built a group. I had a, I had a partner, a woman named Kim Elsesser, who's still a good friend, who came to me in 98, 99, and she said, You know, I've made enough money. I want to move to California. I want to live by the beach. I want to study psychology. I want to get a dog. And I thought, wow, you are pursuing happiness. I guess I'll stay here and I'll keep running the group. (laughs) And there was something about it that that just didn't, you know, that didn't make me happy. And I had a relationship as well and that fell apart at the time. And that combination just got me to think about my life and what's missing. And when I was trying to recuperate from that, that breakup, I was in Hawaii with a friend and I got and I found a piano and I started playing and everything started coming out, all the emotions, all the you know deep inside stuff. And I said, "Wow, I got to do music. I really have to do music." So um, I had taken a sabbatical from work, and uh, this is just to give you a sense of my negotiating style. I went to my boss, it was a fellow named a guy, a guy named Vikram Pandit, um, and I said, "Vikram, I'm burned out. I need a sabbatical." He said, that's great, Pete. Take a sabbatical. We should go to India. <laughs> I said, you know, that's that's great. For I'm not sure if I'm going to go to India. And he said, how long do you need I said, um, I think six months. And he said, you know what? That's great. You should take a sabbatical. But how's about three months? And I, said, hmm. I said, how's about seven months? He said, OK, done. <laughs> so I took seven months off. And then when I came back, I thought, you know what? I still want to do this. But I, I kind of became more of an executive chairman in running the group and I decided I was gonna pursue music seriously. So I applied to Tisch, to NYU Tisch, the master's program in musical theater. I really wanted to go to Berkeley, but Berkeley was in Boston, and I didn't want to move to Boston, and there wasn't really a singer-songwriter program in New York, so I went to Tisch. I lasted a whole six weeks. 9-11 happened, and I was living downtown, and I just realized, you know what? I like musical theater, but I don't love musical theater, so I'm gonna do something else. Um, but I learned the value of critique and that led me to to start my own song circle. So I, every Monday night, I would have people over at my apartment. I would cook them dinner, big bowl of pasta, big salad, and you had to show up with a bottle of wine and a song. So we had a lot of wine. An original
2: song. An original song, (laughs) every single week.
1: And so we, and then you had to print out lyric sheets so people could look at it, and we would critique each other. You'd play the song twice. And I did that for five years, and during that time, really grew as a musical artist, and, and I was like, wow, this is, this is fun. But I was still executive chairman and running the group, but I wasn't coming into the office every day. And I liked that, it was fun.
0: Uh, but um, I guess my question here would be, how do you think music and finance play different roles in your life? You mean, do you think um, they're competing for time and attention for you? Do you think one informed uh, the other to, to allow you to do better than the other? Is it more a
1: sort of collaborative relationship between two of them or a more competing? You know it, it, it's some of both. I mean there, 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 there's definitely time. so I'm in the middle of a tour right now and I'm, I'm opening up for a fellow named Brendan James and going around to a lot of, uh, a, lot of city, a lot of cities with my band and I told people that I, I work with that um, you know um, call me if there's an emergency but I'm gonna be focusing on music. And um, but in general, I get energy from pursuing my passion, from following my bliss. And then I can take that energy and put it everywhere. So there really is a balance. You know, and, you know, when, I, when I run my company, it's, okay, wow, I'm pretty good at this. Where, you know, our investment returns are great. You know, people, there's a lot of respect there. As a musician, I'm trying to win over the crowd. I'm trying to get them to go, wow, I love that song. Um, so that, so there's a, it's, it's a very, very different, if you will, it keeps me humble. The music really keeps me humble, and I love that. Um I would say it, it, it's more synergistic than competitive. Um, so it, how
2: how does your how does your mindset differ like so you said before when you were in finance and it was like you were just fully in it it was intense it was just kind of an all-consuming kind of thing and and now it's you're able to buy, balance both. Do you feel like your mindset when you are doing finance is now different? Do you approach, you know, deals differently? Do you
1: approach people differently like how how does it Well, the way we invest is all it's all quantitative models. Mm-hmm. So I could probably do nothing for a couple of years, and chances are everything would work well. I mean, I have a lot of great people working for me that do great things, but would, you know, would my touch, my magic, my whatever that I bring be needed? No. They could probably be fine without me for a few years unless there was some kind of crazy crisis in the markets. And we'd, but but, but we typically build models, and we trade those models. Um, I'm sorry. What was the question you were asking me? So I, I guess how, is, how does your mindset towards
2: finance differ from when you were when it was kind of an all-consuming kind oh, of thing? Oh right. So free. so
1: yeah. so so the great thing is you know my my role has transitioned to help people who are smarter than I am figure out how to build the next generation of models. And and the experience and I'm glad you asked that question because it made me think of something I wanted to talk about. So when I got to Morgan Stanley and I guess it was 1992 I thought okay I'm going to come in here I'm going to figure out how to do proprietary trading how hard can it be? And I walked in and I thought, you know, I have a lot of respect. People think I'm interesting when I talk and I'm pretty good at math and models and all that. And I realized that kind of nobody there cared. (laughs) You know, they're like, oh, yeah, so you've written some articles or whatever. You're supposed to be smart. Can you make money? And I thought, okay, that's the metric? And they're like, yeah, that's the metric. I mean, they didn't say it that way, but that's how they treated me. There was – I didn't get any respect at all. And – I was shocked because you know that's that's typically the currency of the world. It's like, oh, okay, you've accomplished some things, and and that was motivating for me, right? It was it was it pushed me in a way where I achieved so much more than I thought I would have been capable of. It was really amazing. And when I um, started my group, I started by pushing up pushing people as hard, which which worked in some cases, and then sometimes people pushed back and said, "Wait a second, that's too much." And I I learned. I learned something that's really helped me, which is how to help people grow as quickly as possible. And you need – you kind of need two things there. You need to really care about their success, right? Like they need to believe that you care about them succeeding. And they also – almost everyone needs to be pushed to achieve their maximum, right? The the fastest miler in the world will not achieve that run unless there's somebody right behind them pushing them to, to go as fast as they can. And, and the same is true for anybody in, in an endeavor where they're trying to be best at the world. So how to, how to push people is something I had to figure out. And I've gotten pretty good at it. And I've gotten people to trust that you know I'm coming from a place of love and wanting them to succeed and not wanting to exploit them in any way. And, and that makes it easier for me to do those things and have people that are much smarter than me build our next generation of systems and feel like the trust is all there. So it, it, You speak
0: about everything in such an effortless way, but I, I just imagine it must be so... I mean, I, I guess coming from an outsider perspective who don't know too much about, you know, the the finance world or the music world, it must be so hard to accomplish, I mean, even one of the, the accomplishments that, that you achieved. I mean, whether it's running a great firm or coming up with wonderful music, how, how do you get to do all these things together? Do you ever feel like I really got to hoe in on one thing in order to excel at it?
1: You know, I mean, it's... We we could unwire my brain and try to figure it out, but I'll, I'll give you one <laughs> other thing that I've been reasonably good at, which is I create these crossword puzzles. You mentioned that before, and uh, I published a bunch in the Times, and then I decided that I wanted to have my own monthly puzzle, which is now in the Washington Post, actually. So every, if you want to do a Pete Muller crossword, you can go to the <laughs> Washington Post and do the Muller Monthly Music Meta. <laughs> and so to come up with a great puzzle and. Um,
2: that's a challenge, Tiger.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Do you do crosswords? I don't at oh, all. Okay. You start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, you're a junior and you have your own podcast going around the world. So, so you're not a slouch. You'll figure out crosswords. Yeah. You know, when I when I first created a crossword, I um I tried my best, and bef- this is before they had software that would help you do some things more easily. I did it by hand. I sent it in to Will Shorts at the uh, New York Times, and crossed my fingers. And eight months later, I got a reply that said uh, you know, nice effort. Thanks. Not quite good enough. Here are some things you can work on. And I thought, okay, I'm competitive. I'm going to figure it out. And so I kept trying and trying to come up with a crossword that would get accepted. And I finally got one in and it was funny. I, I sent it in and I hadn't heard back. So I submitted it to another publication. They immediately accepted it. And I said, great. I said, oh, by the way, you know, I sent this to the times about six months ago. I haven't heard back. Um, This is a long story. might not be interesting. But uh, I haven't heard back, uh, and they have replied. They said, oh, you must immediately withdraw it. So I sent a note to Will saying, hey, sorry, I need to withdraw that puzzle. If Somebody else accepted it. Will writes back, oh, that's a bummer. Uh, We were just about to accept it. It's okay. (laughs) So I begged and pleaded to to let let this other publication give it up. They they wouldn't do it, though. So I had to wait for another puzzle to finally make it into the Times. But what it was was persistence and being able to go, okay, what's not working about this? What's the what's in the critique, what's legitimate, what what resonates, what doesn't. And now, you know, I just most of creating a crossroad for me is getting to that super deep place where you have this creative thought about what will work. And it's kind of a wiring of your brain that really that that that's the magic. And the same thing is true for music, you know, and you can you can sit at a desk and work, 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 work. Or you can just kind of have a creative insight and The creative insight is the magic. It's the spark. Then you have to work and then you have to refine it. You have to edit it. But that creative insight is where all the power comes from. And I think that's the the commonality among the different things that I do is that I try to make sure I get to a very quiet place and go deep. So I have a daily ritual every day when I wake up after a cup of tea. Before I eat anything, I always do a half an hour of kind of a yoga meditation thing, a vinyasa flow yoga thing, and then cardio. And then I have some coffee, and for the next two hours, I can do anything, <laughs> right? Um, and and so I try to make sure that I have that time to to do nothing, so that the ideas can percolate. And I think that that's been one of the reasons I've been able to do so many things.
2: And I think that's a that's a somewhat common theme among, like you know, Einstein would talk about how he would take you know long walks in the park, and and the best ideas would come during those walks, right? So, do you feel like maybe working all the time actually? doesn't allow you to have the same sort of creativity or or exercise your your originality in the way that if you take the space to kind of go deep and and to meditate and to just reflect then sometimes the best ideas come from there rather than kind of constantly working.
1: Definitely. But you you kind of have to do both. You have to find that downtime, right? To to really to get that creative idea, but then you have to be able to work really really intensely. And then for those of us like myself who has a wife and a family, you also have to find time to, and it's very different time to spend with them and to share life with them. And and that's another challenge. But I, So so going back to that story, so after I took that break, I, I really, I thought I was phasing out. So my group, I didn't own my firm. It was owned by Morgan Stanley. And I cut a deal with that fellow we mentioned before, Vikram Pandit. And I said, look, you know what? I'll make sure this doesn't blow up. Just take all of the money that I was getting out of the bonus pool, give it to the group, create a separate bonus pool for me. You know, five percent of our profits, four, three, two, one, over the next five years, and then I'm done. And you know, <laughs> he said, and, and I said, don't worry. If, if something bad happens, I'll, I'll worry about it. But I'm going to try to transition it. So sure enough, the group did very well for the next five years. So I, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, I just watched. But they didn't grow. They didn't. They didn't hire people. They didn't bring in sharp people to. Um, to make the business better, like they kind of stagnated a little bit, and then there was kind of a a little struggle over oh, okay, how are we going to divide this pot of money? <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's I mean, I, I, I've never I've never been into this for the money, so I just thought, wow, you know, why why fight over that? It's way more money than any of you need, but and I thought, hey, you know, maybe I should come back. I had met the woman who became my wife, and. She said, you know, you're getting a little too intense about surfing, which I, maybe I was. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know what, maybe I could just go back and kind of become like an executive chairman. And long story, which I don't need to get into, all of a sudden I was running the firm again. But I said, you know what, I'm gonna come back and, and I'm gonna play music every month. So there was a little cafe in the village in New York City called Cafe Vivaldi. Um, I also at this time decided to move to Santa Barbara. So when I came back, I said, you know what guys, I will do this, guys and women, because we obviously did both. Um, I will do this. I will run the firm, but I want to live in Santa Barbara. It's time to have kids, and I wanted to live on the West Coast again. I had missed it. And I'll do this, and I'll come back a week, a month, and a couple months in the summer. I said, or I don't have to come back. You guys can have the firm. You decide. They were a little nervous, but they said, okay, we'll try it. It worked out great. And, but I did say when I was going to come to New York every week, I was going to play at this cafe. And I did for the longest time. They finally closed a year ago. It's called Cafe Vivaldi, but I did it for the longest time. Now, I do remember going back, and all of a sudden I thought, wow, you know, I burned out the first time. I don't want to burn out again. So I'm going to get up, and I'm going to tell people to make sure they have balance in their life. And I, so I give a quarterly talk to my group and talk about something inspiring, talk about how we've done over the quarter. We're very open inside the firm. And I got up, and I said, you know, it's really important to have balance in your life. And this fellow, Yarek, who's one of, our, one of our best guys, raised his hand and he said, okay, Pete, I get it, balance. But when you were building PDT and doing all these incredible things, <laughs> did you have balance? And I said, um, you know, you have a point there. So, so I've kind of changed that philosophy. I think balance is really important in life, but, but you need to do it in bursts. So when you work uh, to, to achieve the maximum success, you have to do it in an all-consuming way. You just have to breathe after a while. So maybe it's a year or two, take a break, you know, and balance yourself. You have to have rituals that allow for that creativity to come in. So, yeah, that that's, that's evolved for me over time.
0: Um, I, I have a question that I'm per- personally pretty curious about because I, I do stand-up comedy sometimes, uh, open mics and stuff. Um, wow, that's th- fantastic. N- not that I have a, another great day job to, to change the world and stuff, but <laughs> I do stand-up comedy on, on the side sometimes. and I. Um, and, and I was just wondering, if a young person comes up to you and says, I love music, just like I love stand-up comedy, I mean, but I'm good at math and quant research and all that stuff, uh, would you recommend him or her or me to, to pursue that passion, whether it's music or stand-up comedy
1: as a full-time career or get a job at PDT Partners? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in pursuing your passion, but making a living doing music, doing stand-up comedy, doing something in the arts... Is damn hard. Even if you're the best in the world at it, it's really hard. So I would say, if that's the only way you can make a living, do it, go for it. If you have to do it and do nothing else, if you are drawn to other things that you love, that pay a lot better, (laughs) that are quantitative, do those things and keep the comedy in your life, right? You know, just go do stand-up comedy every, I mean, every week, every month. But one may
0: argue that had you devoted all your time to just the art you might be able to
1: achieve so
0: much more in that field, in your passion.
1: The question is what kind of life do you want, right? And if if you look around to other people and you say, you know, how happy is your life? And I I know a lot of musicians and I know a lot of um, finance people and I I know people that have done different things. Um, I love having both, right? The people that are only doing music. Unless they've made it, right, unless they've really made it, and even if they have made it, the quality of life is not quite the same. There is a big struggle, right? You're always thinking, oh, you know, that was a great show. Okay, what about the next one? You're nervous about the next show. Are people going to come? Am I going to become irrelevant, right? Even if you're Ed Sheeran, who is amazing and fantastic and turning out hit after hit, he's got to be thinking while he's making his record, okay, is this going to work, Um and how many people get to be Ed Sheeran? How many people want to be Ed Sheeran? So, it is a bet on yourself, and you—you you know, it's a question. It's a risk-return. So I—I wouldn't say Tiger that there is one answer to that, right? It's a personal answer, and you have to go deep. And the good news is you don't have to choose, right? You can keep pursuing both and see where the opportunities take you. I would definitely recommend that. So I wouldn't—I mean, I wouldn't give up the stand-up comedy. Well, actually, I haven't heard you yet, so maybe. <laughs> if I'm is, bad, Is yeah. is he funny? He's reasonably funny. Uh, yeah, okay. Some people it's would disagree with it. Yeah, I, Exactly. I'm, yeah, okay, I'm not gonna ask you to tell a joke. <laughs> oh yeah, you're funny? Okay, come on, let's see.
0: Yeah, because right. um, yeah, I, was, I was also wondering, do you, uh, when, when you do music, is there a certain sort of message you try to convey? Is there a sort of mission that you try to um, embark on, or do you just feel like, I, I love the process of doing music, I'm just doing music for, for doing music? Um, yeah, I don't know, I, I, because I feel like you know a lot of comedians might say, I'm doing comedy because I want to convey a social message behind that. I want, I want
1: to be able to use my words to move people to, to whatever. Um, yeah. Well, I was first drawn to writing songs and performing to kind of do my own therapy and emotional processing and letting a bunch of things come out. So it it started with writing songs about a breakup. And that's, that's very typical, apparently, for singer-songwriters, you figure out, is that it's like, oh, my God, no one will believe how much pain I'm in. This is just... Torture. Nobody has ever experienced this in the history of the world. I'm going to write my mediocre song about it. Again. I have. I wrote a bunch of those, um, and it felt good. And I just when I was writing them and playing them, felt wow, this is amazing. And then you realize, okay, now there's a craft here, and and if you can actually tell that story well and resonate with people, that's great. But for me now, as I think about writing songs, um, you know, I I I've, I've processed a lot of stuff in, in the album, and you know, and you know, part of it is I've been married ten years, and there are challenges trying to, you know, when two stubborn, independent people get together and um, spend life together. And so part of the songs have come out doing that. But I, I, I hope I've gotten better at creating songs that are more universal, that resonate with people. And
2: So your, your thought process has shifted a little bit from, you know, creating songs to express my own emotions to creating songs that I hope will also connect with other
1: people. Right. And as I think about the next record that I'm doing, um, it's it's probably more going to be about how do I – lift people up with the music? In a real way, not in a fake way, not like everything's gonna be great, but <laughs> how, do I, how do I speak to the spirit and the magic and be inspiring? I mean, because I, I love my life, I love simple things, I love being in the ocean surfing, I love walking around in nature, I just love thinking about numbers. And um, How do I just express that joy in a way that resonates with people when they hear the music they can go, wow, that's cool, right? So, so I, I guess the purpose going forward for me will really be to inspire if that makes sense. Yeah, so you've
2: studied classical piano, jazz piano. You've taken vocal lessons. Um, Apart from the musical theater program, uh, do you think that, I mean, you've never attended, let's say, a music school, so how would you characterize your music style and genre right now? Do you feel like you might produce different styles of music from those who maybe had a more traditional path towards and maybe more structured path of of, of music training and maybe classical music?
1: I think that's right. I mean, I... So I studied classical music for five years and this really this gets to the to one of the themes which is how a very small thing can take you on a different path and I got bored I just didn't want to keep playing scales and keep playing pieces that somebody else had written it just it wasn't inspiring to me um, so i I stopped and I ran into a friend maybe a year after I quit and we just started talking and he said you know I'm I'm taking these jazz improvisation le- lessons from somebody in uh, in Denville, New Jersey. I, I, I lived in Wayne, which is a half an hour away. And it's kind of fun. And I thought, what the heck, I'll try it. And I tried it, and I, 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 it was about a year and a half that I took those lessons, and it changed my life. I remember going in there and... The fellow's name was John Amadeo. I have since tried to track him down because he changed my life. Who knows? Maybe somebody will hear his name on this podcast and find (laughs) him. But um, he was a studio musician, and uh, he gave me two cassette tapes. I'm not sure if you guys know what those are, but that's how people listened to music back then. And he said, look, one of these things I think you'll find immediately accessible, and one of them it will take a little longer, but you will end up loving. And the first one was Stan Getz. Which I liked immediately. And the second was John Coltrane doing favorite things. And sure enough, I just, I still, you know, light up every time I hear that. And I remember learning how to improvise. And he sat down next to me at the piano and said, OK, you get one note. You get that note right there. That's the only note you can hit. You just have to figure out how and when to play it. You can vary when you play it, you can vary how long you hold it, you can vary how loud. Go. And then after a week, I graduated to two notes and slowly learned improvisation. And that is what led me to creating and opening up. All of a sudden, I had a language and a palette. Now, if I had been educated at a music school, could I have gotten to where I am now faster? Yeah. Do I think about taking classes now? Yeah, it's great. But I think there's also something that comes out when you don't know what you are supposed to or not supposed to do. And there's a magic and joy in that.
2: Absolutely. I think there is a magic in – so I I do Indian classical music. And so, you you know, you – you have sort of a very rigid and regimented training schedule for like the first maybe six, seven years or even more. Um, but then you come to improvisation, which is a pretty central facet of, of the music. And then actually, when you perform on stage, 50 to maybe even more uh, percent of the performance is actually just you improvising on stage. Um, and I, I, I think there is, if you could speak more to that, but kind of the magic of, of creating on stage rather than kind of reproducing what you might already know and have prepared before. And is that something that you do in your performances? Um, like, do you do you sometimes try to improvise, or, or, or I mean, do you feel like that there's a certain magic on stage when the, when it just comes together right then and there versus being prepared beforehand?
0: Because you are a big advocate for performing live,
1: uh, to my understanding. You, well, the last couple of years, I've, I've basically said to myself, you know what? Um, I never really went around and performed live. You know, I would play once a month in New York City, but that that's not a lot. That's twelve shows a year, and I I thought with this record with the last two records i did one in 2014 and this one but much more this one i'm just going to go around and see what it's like to play a lot so i'm in the middle of a 17 show run um opening for a fellow we did a 20 show run earlier this year Um, when you do that and you get more comfortable on stage more relaxed that's when the magic happens so we do have parts of our set that are improvised Mm -hmm. right i have a violin player playing with me uh sax player on at least on one song uh on this in this configuration and that's that's really fun um uh so but we're doing four-part harmonies and the songs are pretty structured so there's a certain amount of improvisation that we can have but but not as much as that right it would be fun to do a pure jazz gig where it's all improvisation right yeah (laughs) i used to uh so when i was young i used to play
0: saxophone uh, on the on the street of Beijing, where I where I grew up, because I know you play a uh, keyboard uh, early parts of your career in New York subway. So I wanted to he- hear your thoughts. I mean, I I played um, when I was saxophone on the streets of Beijing when I was in elementary school because I wanted to buy this expensive toy. My parents were like, "You have to at least get to experience the the what it means to make money yourselves. So why, why not just bring your saxophone onto the street and make a couple bucks?" So I ended up going. The, um, so so, I, I mean, your motivation must have been very different from me. But I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on what it feels like just being in. Those kind of places and performing for very different
1: types of audiences, I, I imagine, right? Sure. So, so I, I probably played in the New York City subway as a total of ten times. There was a fellow in my my song circle that said to me one day, um, "Well, you know, if you want to see what it's really like to perform, why don't you just go into the subway and play?" And I said, "Really?" And it just the thought sounded terrifying to me. And he said, "Yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen?" And I thought. You're right, but it, it, was, it was scary. I mean, I can get in front of a room of 250 people and give a talk on quantitative finance, and I'm not nervous, it's fine. Playing in the subway, oh my God, it was terrifying. But that was the reason to do it. Yep. So, uh, And and you know, the acoustics, I, I found a place with, with great acoustics, not as much traffic that that was the downside so but but enough that came by and you could figure out if you were touching somebody and it was it was a, it was a great experiment uh, i do prefer clubs <laughs> sound systems a little better it's a little easier to get to and all that but uh, but it was fun to challenge myself that way
0: awesome did you see any of your uh, employees walking by and not giving you a look and you're like
1: I'm going to fire that guy tomorrow. You know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I actually, there there was, I was recognized once by somebody who was not in my group but worked for Morgan Stanley who went by and and said, uh, I'm not going to give you a dollar. And I said, that's totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I
0: think based on this interview, you gave me a sense that you are really happy, optimistic, uh, constantly looking for intellectual challenges and creative juices. But, I don't know. are there any moments that you feel angry, perplexed, anxious, um, not knowing what to do? because um, because I guess a lot of musicians and artists actively bring upon suffering upon themselves uh, in order to come up with things. But I, yeah, yeah, I we don't... were just
1: talking about this the other night, um, that, you know, when you know Sarah McLaughlin did this incredible album, fumbling towards ecstasy, and then she got happy. and then the, the albums after that didn't quite have that same emotional impact. So, you know, maybe I have to go through some real torture before my next record <laughs> to have the best thing. Yeah. Um, I do, I mean look, I, I do I am optimistic by nature. I do think that if you if you focus on love and on the positive of things that better things happen. But I'm also highly aware of everything that could be better, which which can can make it Ask my wife, could make it hard to live with me sometimes. <laughs> because I'm always like, oh man, that could have been a little bit better if we just did it this way or that way, whatever you're talking about. So so I'm always aware of what could be improved. And and you know, you can never have perfection, but you should always seek it. So that there there is that dichotomy that exists in me. Right? And and if there's something that I'm pursuing that I'm that I really care about and there are all these things to improve, I can get a little too intense sometimes. And that's something I, I try to work on. I just, you know, work on letting go more.
2: So when doing that did- was there a time where you experienced like a huge failure when you took a risk or you you, or you pursued something that you know you really wanted to pursue? Um, and could you speak about that and like you know how you maybe rebounded after
1: that? Well, I think you know when I first started doing music, I really didn't achieve what I had hoped to achieve initially, and I think I didn't realize, um, in particular, how much I had to work on singing and my voice to, to have the kind of impact that I wanted to. I think that was a a big challenge in my life. Um, I guess I went through a relationship breakup once where I took the other person for granted, and I thought that was a very, um, that was a very big mistake that just impacted me a lot emotionally. I have this view in the world that um, you should always be as generous as possible. You should always give as much as you can, and that in any interaction you should strive to give more than you get back. And, and, and it's, a, it's, it's something that Adam Grant wrote about, um, uh, who's a friend. And I, I think it really, really works in life. You know, he has this, this, this give-and-take philosophy which says that if you, um, if you study people that have been very, very successful, the most successful people tend to also be very, very generous. There are also some people that are very, very generous that don't do well at all because they don't learn, they, they, they don't learn when to stop giving. But, but if you always, in every interaction, make sure that you, you give more than you get back. Um, i think you've led a great life you have friends you accomplish a lot of things you know doors open to you because people people like being around that w- uh,
0: what would you say would be your i guess life philosophy was it ever about uh, cuz i don't know i think arjun and i sometimes uh, feel like we have such great privilege to you know be able to receive this princeton education and we feel sometimes with a, a duty or burden that you know we are we ought to help people or whatever. I don't know, whereas I have some other friends who are more laid back and sort of take life as a given and probably arguably have a more content and happier life than us. So I, I don't know, what, what is your life philosophy like? What What is the the, the values that you hold by? Uh, I guess it's such a generic <laughs> broad question that's very hard to pin down, but uh, I'm curious to, to to hear how you guide yourselves through decisions to um, pivotal moments in life.
1: I think the main thing for me is to try to get to as quiet a place as you can and to go as deep as you can and to figure out what really resonates with you. And if it's giving back and helping people and feeling really great about that, that's gonna give you power. You're gonna get strength from that. You're gonna get energy from it if you're following the right path. And if you're doing something that is draining you, you're probably going in the wrong direction. And I think it's just being sensitive to that. Taking feedback from the outside world is really, really important, hearing what people think, but at the same time, not letting somebody else's emotional stuff sway you. And there's a dance there, right? So how you interact with the world really, really matters. You can close yourself off and get no input. And who knows, maybe if you were born brilliant, you're going to do something great. But you can also take input from everybody and get overwhelmed. It's, It's selectively figuring out What works, and then when you find something that 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 just turns you on and that makes you burn, just going for that, right? And and I think if I if I look at the different things in my life that I've been passionate about, I got really passionate about poker. I play once or twice a year now for charity events. I mean, I just like I figured it out and I decided, you know, it's a fun game, but I don't want to keep doing that. Um, But when I was in it, I was really in it. I kept records, I studied, I did all that, and and I think. When you, I, I think the philosophy would be when you do something, do it all out. Put yourself fully into whatever you're doing. Um, yeah, that's that's a wonderful life philosophy.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, before we, we end the show, we always ask uh, our, our guests, I guess, two questions. One is, what would be one contrarian view that you hold that many others might disagree with? And, and another one is just... Uh, because the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, so I want to ask you like, what the punchline you think here is You know, for music, for finance, for PDT, for your career. Um, yeah, I would
1: love to, to hear your thoughts on those. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give you answers to both. Give me a pause for the first one I didn't think about. Uh, the one. Let, me, let, me, let, me, let me think about the contrarian one for a second.
0: Um, it might be a tough one. I it is a, it is a tough one. <laughs> I'm. I'm trying to think too. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that that. What what about this? What what if I rephrase the question? Uh, I mean, we can also go off the record in terms of this one. I, yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about finance a, at all in this in this interview. But I wanted to hear your thoughts. I mean, what do you think finance is actually creating? What do you What do you think? Uh, or more specifically, quant funds. What do you think people are are doing here? I, I, because I, I sometimes um, struggle with that. I feel like that's a finding something we humanly, you know, constructed and made it up. And I don't know if it has as much of an impact on helping people's lives. I, I, I'm not um, literally attacking on your entire career. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm just saying playing that's, that devil's advocate. I mean. Oh, And, and there's, we, a, there's an
2: interesting morality around finance in Princeton where like, a lot of people say, oh, you're, you're selling out to finance. Right? That's a very common phrase that people use. And, and obviously that carries its own, I guess, connotations. And, um, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you a
1: story. You know, When I was at Princeton, I dated a woman who has since gone on to be a, um, an editor at the New York Times. And she took a summer job at the Wall Street Journal. And I made fun of her for it. I said, "You are going to work for that capitalist rag? <laughs> how dare you?" And she said, "No, the reporting is pretty good." And I said, "Oh, but but how could you do that? You're selling <laughs> yeah, out." Yeah. So I totally get where you're coming from. <laughs> I think there are a lot of things done. You know, if people are doing things to pursue money, it, it that's not that interesting to me, right? I, I never did finance, investing, whatever for for the pursuit of money. It was always an interesting mathematical challenge. Um, the philosophy of our firm has always been. To, to never, I mean, play by the rules, be highly ethical, treat our investors, treat our employees well, and never do anything where we feel like, okay, well, we can exploit this rule by doing this, but, but somebody who is a naive investor is gonna get hurt. We, we, we actively wanna do good in the world, and I think the, the way we trade actually makes markets more efficient. So that, that's been a really important principle, and it was never really, it was not about the money. It was creating something great and creating a culture. I mean, PDT is really a research lab, and it's a pretty great research lab. And everything I do in music is kind of the same way. I want to bring joy. I want to connect with people. Um, But we humans like to get good at things, right? We like to achieve recognition and success. That's just how we're wired. So the journey through life has to be a way of combining those two. That's the most important thing, I think, if that makes any sense. Um, So you asked me what – what my what, punchline punch is for this interview so I did yeah. think of it and I we didn't talk about it at all but it, it's <laughs> something that a friend of mine said to me a million years ago and I don't th- I don't think it was a paraphrase it was his own quote but I thought it was a really great life philosophy and it was freedom is power not the other way around
0: huh. <laughs> I mean people who have power might have freedom might not have freedom
1: if you have power, you don't, you don't necessarily have freedom. But if you have freedom, you have power. And I think that's, I think that's the magic insight. So if you think about when you, when you wake up, how much of your time is spent on stuff that you're choosing to do, that you're excited about, that you've invested in for your growth, for your friendships, for your connections, for, for whatever. And how many things are things that you, other people are imposing on you? Right? The more power you have, the more, if you're worried about keeping that power, you have to do things that you might not want to do. So, freedom is power, not the other way around. That's fascinating. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, guys, thank you so much. No, thank uh, you so thank much you for, for joining I'm so us. impressed. I mean, when I was a junior <laughs> at Princeton, <laughs> I was barely making my way down to the ultimate Frisbee. field. <laughs> Here, you guys are doing this podcast.
0: No, I, 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 we're really grateful that you decided to join us. I mean, your, your life story is so Amazing. multi yeah. Dimensional and fascinating, I, I I don't know how you do it personally. I also don't. Arjun and I certainly aspire to to do that. I mean, because I feel like we have such a diverse range of things going on in our life, but we, we don't go deep yet uh, into certain areas. Arjun is really into AI research, Indian music, uh, classical music. I love econ. Uh, I love comedy, but but we wish we could get to your level at one point. You know, you know,
1: you have a lot of years to go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I've been around on this planet a lot longer than you have, and if you're going, if you go at you know, one third the speed you're going at, you'll, you'll, you'll catch me, it's great. You know, the one thing we did, we didn't talk about um, Berkeley and Power Station in New York yeah, City, and right. I'm bummed that we didn't do that. Well, I don't know. Why
0: don't we, why don't we give a quick plug right now? I'll give you quick 10 point. seconds,
1: I, I, I have to go perform. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can edit it in, is that what you do? Uh, sure, you we know, can, we can, if yeah. It, if it works. Um, so one of the coolest things that I, I was able to do, I didn't actually go to Berkeley, but I, I ended up joining the board and Roger Brown, the president, said, well, you know, if you're gonna join the board, you need to do something cool uh, at some point. You need to find some project that you wanna invest in, and I said, you know, you're right. If I'm gonna stay on the board, I wanna do that. Let's figure it out, and after a few years, there's a, there's a long story here, which I won't be able to go into, but it's a cool story. Um, I was looking to build a, a studio in New York City, and it turns out that this legendary studio, it used to be called Power Station, then it was called Avatar, was going to be sold and turned into condos, and I just thought, you know, I've been lucky enough to be successful in life and have resources to do something. And, and the whole point for me of philanthropy is to do something that hasn't been done before and that without you wouldn't have happened. So long story short, I ended up buying Power Station, and it's become Berkeley, New York City, basically. I'm going to have my studio on the top floor, but then the rest of it, the, the, the legendary Recording studio is all going to be for Berkeley. It's going to continue to stay as a uh, as a working studio, and it's also going to be a place where people will earn master's degrees and be Berkeley's first outpost in New York City. So that's amazing. Um, being able to do something amazing. like that was really really cool. Okay. And 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 who knows if I. Talk to you guys again. I can tell you the whole story behind that. I mean going back to your uh, critique for your friends
0: going to uh, Wall Street Journal, you know, those capitalist rags, you know, <laughs> turning those wonderful studios into uh, condos. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, no. I mean, intent really, really matters. Why you do something and where your heart's coming on. And, and one of the things that's going on in this country right now is is because we're so polarized, people just are judging without thinking. And if you fail to see the human, right, you miss everything. You miss everything. And Powerful
0: lesson. No, yeah. that was wonderful Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Well, this Thank was so much fun. Thank yeah. you, guys. Thank so much. Sure. Uh, and, and to our listeners, this concludes this episode of, of Policy Punchline. Please uh, follow us on policypunchline.com. Uh, check out Mr. Pete Muller's uh, album, Dissolve, and his uh, upcoming recording as well on Spotify, iTunes. Uh, you can follow us and his stuff at the same time. Pete, Pete Muller
1: Music <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> on Instagram and on Spotify. So thanks, Tiger. Thanks, Arjun. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you.